This episode was brought to you by Kimberly Clark Corporation. Poise by Kimberly Clark is the number one household leader in light and feminine care products and is the only brand in the category driving household growth. Poise's consumer-focused approach, centered on comfort, protection, and sustainability, makes it a leader in repeat customers, loyalty, and annual buy rates. Plus, Poise is the undisputed leader in sales, contributing 60% of overall growth in the category. If all of this tells us one thing, it's that Poise is the brand for light-end customers. Thank you to Kimberly Clark for sponsoring CGA Radio. Welcome to CGA Radio. I'm your host, Grace Becker. And today in the studio, we have Levi Wingo, Senior Vice President of Operations at Rayleigh's. Welcome. Thank you, Grace. It's nice to be here. Thank you so much for being here with us. So, can you tell me a little bit about your role at Rayleigh's and just how you got there? Sure. So, this is a fun year because I have officially been in grocery for 20 years this year. Congrats. That's huge. (laughs) So, I started with Rayleigh's as a courtesy clerk, which is still one of the really cool things about this industry is you can start an entry-level job and end up running something big someday or a big piece of the business. And I am a testament to that. So I have spent my entire career at Rayleigh's. Um, I've done a variety of different jobs over that time. A lot of that time has been working in our stores, Uh, but then eventually I moved up to leading a district. Um, I worked on the development of our concept downtown Sacramento called Market 515. Yes! A little bit ill-timed, unfortunately, with the pandemic and what's going on in the downtown areas in general. Uh, but a really cool project of bringing a grocery store to an urban area that didn't really have one. And uh, since then, I've been in various roles leading our operations teams, including our stores, our pharmacy business, and now um, construction design and maintenance as well. So that wow. is my role. Full plate. Got yes. a lot going on. That's awesome. I've, I've been to Market 515, so that's really, I didn't know you were the... That was mine. That was mastermind. the general manager for that, that Oh, concept. my gosh. Uh, you know, obviously, the... The um, culmination of a lot of work from various teams at Rayleigh's, including, you know, the project of our owner, but um, something I was really excited to get to work on for a couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. That's thank you. Thank you for sharing that. So you received a Master of Science degree through the Food Industry Leadership Program at USC. Can you tell us a little bit about the opportunity and how it came up? Yes. So uh, I decided in 2016 I wanted to go to the Food Industry Management Program, which is a legacy program that's been at the University of Southern California for over 60 years. So a lot of key movers and shakers in the industry have been a product of that. There's several of, of the folks that you would meet at a CGA conference and they'll all raise their hand. We all we do a picture there every year, <laughs> um, but several board members as well. So a great program with a long history of developing leaders in the food industry. Um, part of that program was talking about this idea of, we want to do this master's program. Um, Cynthia McLeod, who is the, uh, Dr. McLeod actually now, um, who leads those programs at USC, had dreamt of putting together a master's program that focused on our industry. So when she started talking about it, like, I want to do that. That sounds great. So it was a lot of work uh, from her and various teams of getting it approved by the university and finally culminated into a master's program, which I was the inaugural class for um, Dr. McLeod's work at that university. So really exciting program. Um, Obviously, top tier institution with the Marshall School of Business. 
and supporting the food industry for over 60 years. They wanted to take that to the next level, and that's how the master's program came to life. So um, very, very uh, focused on the future of what's going to happen in you know business, but specifically what's going on in the food industry and how are we going to meet the challenges of consumers in the future. Well, okay, that makes sense and really brings us to our, our focus here. So for your capstone project, you studied food deserts. So first, what is a food desert? Can you just tell us that? Yes. <laughs> so a food desert is an area where there's population and there's no readily accessible option for healthy food. That's a key differentiator. A lot of times people think, oh, there's food in the area, but those are places where a grocery store used to be or has left or maybe never was. And the only thing that might exist is something like fast food. Gotcha. Um, so key is there's a lot of people, there should be demand, and there's no option for people to access food. Okay. And I watched, I was telling Levi earlier, I've watched his capstone project. So I have a few numbers here. Over 6,500 recognized food deserts are in the U.S., it sounds like, and, you know, over 25 million people are affected. So seems like it's a huge, huge issue. So it's interesting because of the 6,500, you'll find an, uh, a, a mix of places where you almost would expect there to be a food desert because mm -hmm. the community is so rural. People have to travel long distances. There's a you know very small town. So you might think that there's not demand. So that's one area of food deserts that exists. But I think the more interesting one is where you see a great density of population and nothing for those people to be able to go buy healthy food at. And that's really the key piece of our research that we looked at through our capstone presentation um, and case facilitation was really, why are there these areas that there's a lot of people and no options? Right. So you described this problem in your team, your capstone team, as a wicked problem. Can you kind of tell us what that means and how, how yeah, this applies? So Wicked problems, by definition, are problems that shouldn't be. There, there's something at the root, and, and, and it's creating kind of more of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And food deserts were the thing that we thought of, like, this is rough. Like, So the thing that's interesting is in any community, generally the grocery store is the pillar of economic um, activity mm -hmm. in an area. So once there's a grocery store, everything else starts building out around it. So you think of a shopping center. It always starts with an anchor. Mm -hmm. The anchor is generally a grocery store. It can be other things, but grocery is something that every community needs. And then around that, you'll have more businesses start to pop up. What happens when businesses pop up? It creates an option for customers, but it also creates economic activity and jobs. So tax revenue for a community, um, to build up things in, in the services that they may need or require. Absent of those activities, there is no tax revenue. So we started building out, like, look at all these things that happen when there's no grocery store. A grocery store leaves a community. Generally, you'll see the shopping centers start to die with mm -hmm. all the businesses in a shopping center close. When that happens, that could have represented several hundred jobs in a community that just no longer exist. So now you have a community with no readily accessible food option, but you also have a community with fewer jobs to be able to support and sustain themselves. And as a result, less tax revenue to be able to support things like schools or roads or parks. So you create a larger problem when a grocery store exits a community that really has a longer lasting um, economic impact to the community at large. 
Yeah, it sounds like a snowball effect, kind of. That's and right. It's just rippling out. Well, so what would a scenario of someone living in a food desert look like? Like, could you walk us through that? Sure. So it just depends on, on you know, what area we're talking about. But I find it's usually really helpful to look at examples. And right. one of the examples we studied in our case was in North Minneapolis. So, you know, if people don't know the area. It's this area of a really large city that represents about 60,000 people with no grocery store. Oh. In any other example, if one of us saw an, an example, you know, there's 60,000 people in this community, we would all be tripping over each other to try to open a store there. But in this community, it's been different. There's There's been stores there and they've exited over time. So for someone that lives in a place like that, they are likely in a place where there's lower income and therefore, you know, lower cost of housing and lower quality of housing. Um, and then fewer services in those areas. So you're likely riding a bus for 15 to 30 minutes to get to your nearest store and then trying to travel back with what you can carry with you mm -hmm. for your groceries for the period of time. So it's it's a trek for people that could be burdensome. You know, think of someone that doesn't have as much access to transportation and trying to get to a place where they can buy food. It's just a really rough scenario for people living in an area where they can't readily access food. Yes. We take it for granted every day. We drive by tons of grocery stores in and out on the way home, or you might walk by them on the way home. And there's, a, you know, like we said, 6,500 communities across the country that don't have that same kind of access that we enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. And what are some of the consequences of some for someone living in a food desert? You either end up with limited access to a job, limited access to healthy food, um, potentially eating unhealthy food every day because that's what's readily available through things like a convenience store or fast food only. So it really limits the choices people are able to make. And then the long-term consequences of that could be more income inequality that leads to less, even less access to healthy food. But beyond that, it's the health consequences. You know, one of the organizations we partnered with to work on this research was the Health Education Council that does a lot of great work in, in the Northern California um, area. And a lot of what they do is helping to educate people that don't have the means or knowledge around how to make healthier decisions. So that's a great starting point. Like you can help educate people on what they should be eating. Mm -hmm. But then if they don't have access to it, they're, they're kind of left with the same options. So you see a lot of these communities that exist around food deserts tend to have more health problems mm -hmm. um, as a result, and then therefore require more medical care that again, they may not have access to because again, there's no, no central point of activity in the area to build a medical building, for example. Right. So that it's it's this. That's why we really called it the wicked problem because everything you keep coming back to is we don't have this, you know, pillar of the community that we need for other things to come. Right, and it just contributes to a host of other issues that it, it's can be. It sounds like very difficult to kind of climb out of. That's right. So. What factors contribute to actual food deserts and why do you think it's such a difficult issue to address? So that, we'll, we'll go back to um, the Minneapolis example, mm -hmm. just because there was an opportunity for more to happen. Um, there was a lot going on in Minneapolis over the last couple of years, um, you know, centered around the events with the killing of George Floyd. And, you know, what ensued after that was a lot of social unrest 
that led to businesses being damaged and it ended up closing two grocery stores that served some of those really you know at-risk communities of not having somewhere to go mm -hmm. so i think what's interesting about that in kind of this self-fulfilling prophecy is there's conditions around certain neighborhoods that change over time you know you really think about the downtown core that's a great place to start because what happened over the last 30 years well people started moving out to the suburbs and we started to see this resurgence but during COVID, obviously that changed a little bit but there's there's factors that change the needs around a community at some point there are a lot of people that live there and that's why there was a grocery store but as those folks started moving out to bigger homes potentially in the suburbs then they left you know apartment buildings that maybe weren't cared for as much as they could have been so they become lower income neighborhoods over time which doesn't mean people don't need access to food still but other things start coming with that with less people paying tax revenue via property tax for example or or sales tax there's less money to take care of and serve that community so you could think that could mean fewer police officers on the streets. It could mean fewer cleaning services that come by and take care of the neighborhood. So all of these things culminate into conditions that make it less viable and less attractive to neighborhoods um, to operate in. So with that generally can come a degree of higher theft, for example. Higher theft cuts right into the profitability of a grocer. So if you have this community where it's there's not as much disposable income for people to spend on food, for example. They, they've had to move away because they, they don't have the, the cash to spend on that. When you have those things happen, sales go down. But then your costs are rising because your shrink is higher because you have a higher degree of theft. With a higher degree of theft, you may implement new practices and policies, which mean more spend on things like security. But what happens over time is you keep eroding the profitability of, of the location. And eventually there's a point in time where, you know, grocers are left with this decision. I can't continue to operate unprofitable stores. All of these market conditions have led to a place where I can't viably make this business work any longer. And that's when stores start to exit. All of those things that I just mentioned are a combination of just demographic shifts in a neighborhood with income moving, maybe younger folks move to an area that don't have as big of a family, or just generally there's less income in that neighborhood. But on top of that, policy decisions drive that as well. When you think about theft being one of those major issues, theft is one of the external theft, meaning people coming in and stealing from you not just food but specifically you know organized retail crime as one of those those items that's leading to this place where grocers are not able to operate profitably and in these at-risk questionable challenging stores that's not a hard decision to make when you're looking at the bottom line and top line of the store business unfortunately and that's what leads to grocers exiting these markets that are really tough to operate in you know ruling those out in favor of locations where they can get more of the support they need in a community to, to make the business work that makes sense. It's, yeah, not an ideal area for a store to locate themselves. Um, can you touch a little more on policy and what you think yeah. needs to change to contribute? So one of those examples that has just changed so drastically in the last several years is the change in policy around what's considered theft and what isn't anymore. Mm -hmm. That. Um, that key decision had this kind of overarching impact where, you know, if you were operating a store with a normal level of shrink before, that one policy change could have increased your shrink 
by over 100 basis points in a store. And as everyone knows, the grocery industry, while there's a lot of volume and a lot of sales that come through it, it is a razor thin profit margin. So if you have a store that was on the cusp, just with the added theft that's occurring right now, you may not be profitable any longer. That one policy change has had such a drastic impact. There's been grocers across the state that have exited markets where they've existed for 50 plus years. You think about San Francisco as an example, and not just grocery, but the drug channel as well. Folks are exiting those markets because they can't afford to do business there anymore because of the element of, of retail theft that's occurring. And again, most of this is not around someone coming in that's struggling to get the meal. It's someone really taking advantage of the system and stealing product and selling it in a different revenue stream mm. for themselves, like a marketplace. So what can policymakers do to help with this issue? I think the, the one of the greatest opportunities is for the policymakers to listen to the retailers and food companies when you bring things that are really challenging um, up. So the thing that's most on my mind right now is our current situation around external theft. We have no recourse. When someone comes in and steals time after time, there's no active focus on that from, from our policymakers. And you know, I feel really bad for the law enforcement officials because they're hamstrung in this area right now with the, the cutoff of what's acceptable to steal and what isn't. But if you're the general everyday person and you decide you want to start a side business selling general merchandise products, you can go in and steal less than $1,000 and nothing's going to happen. So I think we've got to figure out a better system where people don't feel like that's okay. Right. And it's happening in such frequency now it's becoming one of the largest drags on profitability. And the really sad part that I don't think our, our policymakers understand is that is 100% adding to this challenge with inflation right now. Mm. There's Retailers can't afford to take that hit and become unprofitable businesses. So what's going to happen? That's going to be passed on to the consumer that continues to pay. All of that theft is being funded from, from consumers that shop today. So I think the, the biggest challenge that everyone has to figure out is how do you make stealing from retailers not a thing anymore? Mm -hmm. and, and that's a challenge that's got to be tackled and it can't be done by retailers and security. Right. It's got to be done differently. We've got to figure out what the community needs and why they continue to have that level of theft in these locations that cause them to go out of business. Because what will end up happening is creating a situation where it's so unattractive to do business in these areas that there's no grocery options and no retail options and they'll become what I described earlier with a community that can no longer sustain itself. So what conclusion did your group during your capstone project come to as far as a solution to address food deserts? So I would say what our group did um, to under, you know, we tried to really understand the problem and the problem is what I just described. It's really hard to operate in these markets, but there's plenty of people, so there should be a way to make it work. Uh, but the challenge for, for many of us, it's so risky to re-enter a market maybe that you used to do business in because you know what that result looked like. So we tried to think about the problem from different angles. And you know, the company that we studied in this research 
we studied what happened to them during the social unrest and you know the events that led up or that you know followed um, George Floyd's killing, and those stores decided they were going to stay in those markets, even though they were challenging markets, and they operated as temporary stores for a period of time. So literally, the former store burned down, and in the parking lot, they erected a tent and made a grocery store, which was incredible the amount of time it took. And and this was through, um, which you can read in the case, but Cub Foods, which is a Mm. member of the UNFI family of companies. And the CEO, um, Mike, decided, we're going to stay here. So these communities need somewhere to come shop. There's a lot going on in the community. We're going to be the, the at least the stable thing they can they can come back to. Uh, and they they tested and learned quite a bit. But what they looked back and said, you know, obviously something happened here. Our store was burnt down. And I think what we came to the conclusion of is, if a community doesn't feel connected to their local grocery store, they're not going to feel as um, responsible for what happens to it Mm. and in that moment you know when this all happened not saying that this was the intent of the people that were rioting in in minneapolis but it was just seen as another corporation and that's really not what the grocery store is in most cases all of our stores have very strong local connections with our communities we do a lot to give back but in this example that community didn't feel that way so the approach that this company took was let's figure out how we can connect differently with the community going forward. So there was a lot of outreach done at the time to different community organizations to try to engage them in a solution versus I'm gonna throw a bunch of money and more security to make Mm. sure the store is there when the next wave comes through. And the result, you know, from doing this, they partnered with some faith-based organizations. They partnered with some government organizations. They partnered with, you know, just various local communities, community organizations that had overarching reach. Um, So part of what that looks like is when you hire for the store, you hire people that actually live there. Mm -hmm. Because you're going to feel a lot differently doing damage or stealing from your neighbor than you are a guy that sits in an office in a big building somewhere. And that's really that local connection that has to happen for this to be successful. But we we studied all of these different things that they did and put together this plan of, if you're gonna operate in a food desert, you need to start connecting with the organizations that have the most reach that matter to that particular community. So in this example, it could be the local church that operates a food locker that takes care of people when they don't have money to spend on food. It also could be an organization that works with at-risk youth to find them employment or get them engaged in college, um, as an example. Or it could be an organization that really helps do something locally for a school that doesn't have enough funding. So those are the types of organizations, and they'll be different in each community that needs this. But the idea is you have to have a very localized approach to engaging the community so that in the event things happen, like someone decides to steal from you, the community feels more responsible for that store because this is my store. This is not just somebody's. I shop here. It's in my neighborhood. And I'm responsible for, for you know, its fate long term. So that's an idea that we came up with. You know, the, the overarching piece of this is it needs to be a coalition between government, retailers, and the people that live in, in various areas and connecting with them on a level where they feel engaged in the local store. 
And a lot of our communities that we serve have this today, but this is something that's missing in many of the places that we would consider food deserts that some of us may have used to operate it, you know, stores mm. in that no longer do. Um, you know, our bigger idea that came from this is maybe this starts as a nonprofit that operates a store like this and then gets it to a place of profitability to where it is attractive to a company to acquire to continue to fund the effort in more places. So you think a food desert, we open a store here, it takes one to three years, and that's the challenge. A lot of companies, you know, if you're publicly traded, for example, you've got to make the quarter. So taking a big risk on a community like this may not seem as attractive, but if you have a nonprofit that gets it going and has some expertise around operating a grocery store, engages the community in this, this way, you get it to a place of profitability where it becomes an attractive business and, and therefore less risky to operate. So that was the crux of what we tried to put together as our recommendation for a solve. Wow. That's a really interesting case study, too, that it sounds like you've spent a lot of time with Cub. You said it was Cub Foods. Yes. Um, that's incredible what they did for their community right. and really an example of how grocery stores are there with first responders and in, mm -hmm. in these times of crisis for their community. So that's really interesting. I don't want to leave this piece out because this is something interesting that we talked about because a lot of times we see this as a retailer problem. Mm. And it's not just a retailer problem. You know, our, our CPG partners are also looking for opportunities to expand their points of distribution. And right. fewer stores, they have fewer points of distribution. So when we talked about this partnership, the one piece that I did leave out is it really takes investment from our CPG partners as well. And that was kind of who was represented on our team. So we had two retailers and two folks that work in sales for large companies. So Mike was the other retailer with, mm. with me. And then uh, we had a representative from Post Consumer Brands as well. And that was Kelly Frederick, the sales executive. And then Jamie Violi, who is the VP of sales for Fairbow Foods. So it was an interesting mix talking through it because a lot of people either see these as retailer problems or food company problems, and really, it's an us problem. We all live in these communities. Right, you need everyone at the table. That's right. That That's interesting, I honestly hadn't thought of it that way, so that's, thank you for pointing that out. What do you think is a common misconception or maybe just an unknown element of, of this problem that you think more people should be aware of? You know, I, I'd say the first place people go when you talk about a food desert is food access but they're thinking about it from the point of view of there's no income in this neighborhood we've got to get a food bank you know mm. um, distribution channel here and that's part of it but really the challenge that people it's not just getting food in people's hands and then mouths it's getting them some way to sustain their community long term mm -hmm. if you're just giving people food that's great you're helping solve hunger but there's no way for them to get out of that cycle they need access to services and jobs, and a grocery store in a community is that pillar of economic activity. I think that's the most common misconception. There's plenty of, um, I guess, giving that happens to sustain the need in many of these communities. It's really about creating a sustainable model for a community to build itself out of that that cycle. Mm -hmm. So I think both need to happen and food access through food through, through a partnership like a food bank is a necessary thing that we have to have and it's a great way to help people that need a boost or need help in the moment. But we do need to look at the sustainability of that as the only option. It's got to be both and that's really what that you know 
building up a grocery store in that community could be. That makes sense. You don't want to just use it as a band-aid. You want to really get to the root of it. That makes a lot of sense. How do you think that retailers and CPGs, as you've mentioned, can kind of strike this balance between the social responsibility portion and, um, you know, being a profitable business? Yeah. I think you have to look at them as a a singular focus. You can't look at them as separate. If I do this, I can't do this. You have to figure out how to do both and do both profitably. Many of our companies do a lot around giving back. You You mentioned how we serve our first responders as an example during times of crisis in the state, which unfortunately we've had a lot of the last several Mm. years, both with the pandemic, but also with just fire season now. Right. Everyone is willing to give back because when you give back to the communities you serve, the communities will give back to you. So you ha- you cannot think, you've got to think of the multiple bottom line. Uh, and mo- many companies are doing this now. You know, We have our ESG report that comes out every year that talks about how we invest in our communities, how we invest in our people, and you know how we continue to invest in you know building our business as well. But it's really the concept of multiple bottom lines. You have to have some kind of social equity in the communities you serve for people to want to. People are looking for more than just a place to shop now. They're looking for brands and companies that align with their core values. And then they patronize you as a result. It's really becoming more and more important to emerging generations of consumers as well. So if you want to be in the business of serving the next generation, which all of us do, Mm -hmm. you've got to do things that resonate with them. And, And the way that you think about social responsibility is one of those key areas. So it's what you sell, the impact you have on the environment, and then you have to figure out how to do it profitably. And that's right. the challenge that all of us have as business people. But that is definitely something that we all need to be focused on and not thinking about them as ors, but thinking about how we do them together and, and being and. Right. And thinking uh, thinking about it as not a box, a box to check, but like you said, something that kind of touches every area. It's got to become a core focus of a business. Right. Absolutely. What are some initiatives that Rayleigh's is working on to address food insecurity and hunger in California? So I would say our major initiative is through Food for Families. Food for Families is our charity started in 1986 by Joyce Rayleigh Teal. Uh, very near and dear to her heart because she had been through that growing up as a child, um, having food insecurity where she grew up. And as a grocer that owned a company, she really wanted to give back to the communities that we serve. So through Food for Families, we give food and money every year to our food bank partners to help to drive some of this food insecurity out of the communities we serve. That's one of the ways. The other ways that we handle this is also through literacy. You know, when we go out and teach kids at schools how to use fruits and vegetables um, and, and not just think of them as as this healthy food, but also to use them in cooking. So we've done a lot of work in food literacy, in helping to educate kids, to bringing food to kids in, in schools that may not have as much funding. Uh, but the primary way is through our Food for Families program. And, and that is really 100% of what our customers give goes directly to the community we serve. There's no overhead or admin fees. That's all covered by the company. Great. Thank you so much, Levi, and thank you for coming on to CGA Radio. It was a pleasure to have you. We learned a lot. 
Um, once again, this is CGA Radio. I am Grace Becker, and this was Levi Wingo from Ray Lee's. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.